Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak one-on-one to great entrepreneurs, creators, and pioneers doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you in part by EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, the world's leading entrepreneurs group. EO is a global peer-to-peer network of more than 13,000 influential business owners in 58 countries around the globe. And now the EO Toronto chapter is accepting a limited amount of qualified members. For more info on joining, visit eotoronto.ca and click apply. Today is my great conversation with Chad Olin, founder of Cuba Candela, a leading provider of private luxury tours, accommodation, and exclusive experiences to Cuba. Chad began his career on Wall Street, working in investment banking and private equity in New York. And after receiving an MBA from Harvard Business School, Olin decided to pursue his passion for travel, launching the travel business Cuba Candela in 2016. And in this episode, we talk all about his transition from finance to entrepreneurship, meditation, self-discovery, and insulating yourself from negative emotions, the history of the Cuban revolution and the impact of U.S. politics, building a business at the intersection of experience and impact, and so much more. And so with that, here is my great conversation with Chad Olin. What happened when you left Wall Street behind and how did you go about developing this idea? Mm -hmm. The first catalyst was a backpacking trip that I took um, after I left my job. So I um, uh, had gotten into Harvard Business School. I got my acceptance letter in December, um, but classes don't start until August. And... um, So I had this time where I could potentially do something else. Um, And I decided to leave my job early. um, And I actually left um, the company I was working for in April and decided to embark on a a backpacking trip. So I booked a one-way ticket to Thailand. um, and And I went off to on this backpacking trip by myself in April of 2014. Um, I had about four months. Um, I had no, no itinerary, just had a list of countries that I wanted to check out. And, um, I went by myself and, uh, didn't really have much of a plan. I I just booked a hotel room for the first two nights to get settled. And then from that point, it was kind of each day would lead to a new experience, would lead to meeting a new set of people, um, would lead to a new adventure. And, and, um, and so I started there in Thailand. I spent three weeks in Thailand. And then from that point went on to, uh, Cambodia, Laos, um, Tibet, Nepal, and India over the course of those four months. Um, and just had these incredible experiences. So that was, um, you know, I think the first part of it. And then as it relates to impact, you know, I started to see that I could create these experiences, uh, for other people. And that was how I could make an impact, um, you know, throughout my time on that backpacking trip, um, I started to have great tips for people go to this beach in the morning, not in the afternoon, and you'll be able to see it without the tourists, uh, go to this restaurant, um, and make sure you 
go around to the side corner and, and, and go down this alley and knock on the back window. And they have this special dessert that they prepare you know, just for the people that know that little secret tip. Mm-hmm. And I, I started to give out tips like that to other fellow travelers that I met. And, and I really started to enjoy that and, and feel good about being able to make that small little impact of, of helping people to have those experiences themselves. Yeah. At one point you say in your, in your blog that you would, or, or you did at the time consider retiring uh, and, and living there <laughs> full time and actually never coming back. Is that, is that the case? And I'll tell you exactly where that happened. It was, um, it was on a beach in Thailand, a place called Koh Phi mm-hmm. which if you've, if, uh, if any, if you've been there, You'll know that it was the um, scene of where the movie The Beach was filmed. Do you yeah. remember that movie yeah. with Leonardo DiCaprio back yeah, in the I day? I thought it was – oh, you're right. I thought it was – oh, right, because Copenhagen is where the full moon party is, but Kopi P is That's where right. The Beach was filmed, right? That's right. And when you see it in person, it's just incredible. I mean it's, it looks like you're on a different planet. Your eyes – your brain can't even believe your eyes. Mm-hmm. It's like you're looking at a high definition screen, but it's all around you like an IMAX. I mean, it, it's just so beautiful. This white sand and it's this really crystal clear blue water coming into a cove with these huge limestone cliffs jutting out all around you. And I was lucky enough to be there at a time when there were no tourists. And I just remember kind of wading into the water and sort of, falling into the water and just floating there for a moment. And, um, and that's when that idea hit me that I don't really have to go back, (laughs) you know, I could stay over here and I could probably live with the amount of money I had saved myself to go pay for business school. I could probably live over here for 20 years and what a life that would be, you know, start a little shack on the beach do do moto tours for, for these backpackers and you could make a living. Um, so the thought really did cross my mind. I considered it and, you know, glad you bring that up because that also contributed to that freedom that I felt, which was that I was really in control of my own destiny. You know, I, I was the one making the decision of to go, whether I was going to go to school or not. Um, I didn't feel pressure from, from anyone else that I had to go and, so it was very empowering to just think that, okay, this is my decision. I'm making this conscious decision to do this. And, um, and that becomes part of my, my that will become part of my strategy of, of, of what's next and, and what to explore while I'm there. Talking about exploration, you also talked about this meditation retreat in Nepal where you meditated for a hundred hours. So it was a Vipassana meditation retreat and, um, I have a funny story of how I even got there. Um, you know, I'm the type of person that my whole life, I've always had this really uh, analytical brain, you know, at times that I couldn't turn off, you know, I'm up all night thinking about stuff. And, and so meditation was a concept that was interesting to me. You know, the idea that you could somehow kind of, you know, manage your own thoughts better and, and you know, kind of practice uh, that form of wellness, but I had never done anything with meditation. And and so it's a 10 day silent meditation. Um, You do it at a monastery. In many cases, Um, they have these retreat centers all over the world um, in India and Nepal, but also in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it's 10 hours a day, you know, you wake up at um, 
I think it was around 4.30 in the morning. You meditate for a couple of hours, then you have breakfast. You meditate for a few more hours, then you have lunch. You meditate in the afternoon, take a little break. You keep meditating all day. And then at night, they show you a video of the technique that you should be practicing. That experience was was truly life-changing. Not, not that it set me off on an entrepreneurial path or that it... Um, was a catalyst for anything that I did, but it's just such a powerful technique. Um, you know, I can't, I can't endorse it highly enough. Vipassana style meditation for those that might be interested in putting this into practice at home, let's say, um, for 10 minutes, let alone 10 hours, uh, but for 10 minutes a day, what is the technique that you practiced or that you learned in the videos? You can actually watch the videos on YouTube, so you can see the whole 10-part uh, series, which is one video per day. Um, I would encourage people to just look up the video and follow along. Each video is about an hour, but I'll also tell you from my perspective, the first four days um, are focused solely on feeling the sensation of your breath. So you're sitting there and... You're concentrating as hard as possible to feel the sensation of your breath in on your nose, on your nostrils. As the air comes inside and out of your nose, you're breathing through your nose normally. You're not trying to control your breath in any way. You're just observing what's happening to that small part of your body right around your nose. What, what do you feel? Do you feel the air is warm? Do you feel the air is cold? Do you feel a tickling sensation on your nose? Do you feel a prickle? Do you feel an itching? Do you feel sweat? So you're concentrating as hard as possible on a very concentrated part of your body to feel what's happening on the physical part of your body. What sensations are there? And it's difficult in just 10 minutes because our minds are so active in daily life. There's so much we're thinking about all the time and it's hard to really feel anything happening in your nose. Um, for just 10 minutes. But if you're at a meditation retreat where you turn in your phone and you don't have access to technology, you're not, you don't have books, you can't read, you can't write, you can't even talk to the other fellow participants. A lot of the thoughts that we have automatically dissipate, you know, they just, so it makes it much easier to get into the flow and to concentrate. Now it takes a day or two days or three days, but you'll see that those thoughts just kind of start to dissipate on their own. Um, you know, you're not doing anything, right? There's no external stimulation. There's nothing to think about that's happening around you. And so you can really get into the flow and and you can start to feel a lot of stuff is happening on our body that we're not aware of. So you're concentrating as hard as possible. It's like you're taking a test. It's really a, a mental marathon. You have to concentrate so hard to not be distracted by your thoughts. So you're concentrating on what can I feel in this part of my body? And the first four days are, are the breath around the nose in particular. And then the, the, the last six days, you're, you're using that same focus and concentration and awareness on every other part of your body. Part of this technique of feeling what's happening all over your body, including the pain, is that you, you treat these sensations as impermanent and as objective. So you don't label the pain as being bad 
Um, you just you just observe it as being there for what mm-hmm. it is. And that's how you can start to reprogram your intellectual mind not to react to pain or a negative sensation, which could be anxiety. It could be fear. So you're starting to then really get the core of this technique of being able to um, insulate yourself from negative emotions. That's kind of where it goes. Did you, um, I know we're going off on the meditation tangent for, yeah, for a bit, but for quite it's, some it's time, so, so interesting. I, I, I still want to, <laughs> I still want to stay on it for a bit. When you finish this retreat, what major changes to your life or lifestyle uh, or habits did you implement post retreat, if any? I started meditating uh, 20 minutes every morning. Mm-hmm. So that that was really the main change uh, to my lifestyle. And you still do that? I do. Yeah, Monday through Friday, first thing in the morning. Um, I've gotten into a great routine where I don't have to think about it. I don't doesn't require any willpower. I just automatically, you know, just like you're in a good routine for the gym. You know, I roll out of bed straight to the meditation. 20 minutes. It's a great way to start the day. So that, that's the only real change to my lifestyle. But um, but in terms of benefits, you know, the big one that really I felt from the very beginning was just uh, much less anxiety and stress related to anything, you know, it, because it, it was just so clear that, that this is just a negative sensation in my body. I don't have to react to it. It'll pass on its own. And you can really prevent yourself from multiplying that, that stress in your own mind. Okay. So let's let's get back to uh the four month trip and then this looming mm-hmm. acceptance letter to Harvard, right? So yeah. so you end up going back home and you go to HBS for your first semester. And then December seventeenth, twenty fourteen is an interesting date because President Obama announces the normalization of diplomatic relations with Cuba. And you're yes. in school at the time. Right. Yes. So uh, ob- there's, uh, you know, obvious, <laughs> obvious link to Cuba Candela in, in your business that you start. But I'll let you tell the story. A really great coincidence. Uh, you know, right time, right place. I remember that day I was coming home from an exam. It was my last exam. It was the last day of my first semester at HBS. And I walked into the house where I was living at the time and I someone had the TV on. I saw President Obama announced his normalization of diplomatic relations with Cuba. At the time, I didn't know anything about Cuba. I didn't really know where it was, to be honest. Um, I didn't know, um, you know what was happening there. But I was that very day starting to think about how I was going to spend my summer internship. And, you know, my peers were talking about uh, interning for places in New York or in San Francisco or going abroad and doing entrepreneurial stuff. And, and so we're all thinking about it. We're all talking about it. We're about to go off on winter break. And this is a great time to reflect. And, you know, people are starting to be, do recruiting on campus. And, and, and I was thinking that I wanted to do something crazy for my internship. So I was thinking, you know, what? I've got this free summer and HBS is very encouraging of, of following these different uh, passion projects and, and doing something crazy. And, and you can come back and not feel that you're at a disadvantage for recruiting. You know, they really encourage you to, to expand your horizons and do anything that you want, which was very helpful. Um, and then on top of that, I also wanted to learn a new language. 
And then all of a sudden Cuba just comes out of nowhere. And and that's the lucky part. It's like, wow, right time, right place. Like, holy crap. Like maybe I could go and do something in Cuba. I then spent um, the next semester um, really, really looking into it hard. Um, you know, I, I was researching the, the economy in Cuba, what was happening down there. There was a lot of reforms that had been enacted several years prior to that that legalized the private sector. And, and I was looking at the U.S. laws and this normalization and what overlap there might be in possible business opportunities that could be legal in both countries. And I had this whole list of opportunities that I mapped out, you know, by sector, healthcare, financial services, technology, manufacturing, travel, and so forth. And and, um, and then I went down there and, and I showed up in Cuba um, that summer of, of 2015. And, um, and I spent two months living there. Um, exploring those different opportunities, talking to as many expats as I could and locals and, and Cuba experts and trying to understand what business opportunities there might be. Um, I also took Spanish class um, <laughs> at of the University of creative, Havana. sort of a creative self-imposed <laughs> internship, right? There's no real formality to this, or is there? Well, that's the thing. There actually had to be a formality to it, to do it legally. Mm. So I, I did... Um, a whole program through HBS where I was getting credit for the time that I spent down there. And I had to write uh, a summary of, of my experience and, and what investment um, potential opportunities there were. And so it was self-directed um, to a degree, but I also had a, a faculty advisor and um, you know, I did have to have a deliverable to, to, to follow through on to, to get academic credit. Which, which allowed me to go to Cuba. You, you can't just show up in Cuba for two months as an American. You have to have a specific reason. So that was how I did that part of it. Um, but also took Spanish class and, and, you know, almost similar to my Southeast Asia trip, I just showed up. I had an Airbnb for a couple of days, but it really wasn't very good. I didn't know where the heck I was staying. And thankfully, uh, someone helped me find a place for the first few weeks um, through, through a, a, a home rental. And then at some point I wanted a better place. So I just kind of went out and started knocking on doors and, and seeing new um, apartments and home rentals. And, and I think that was really the start of the, um, the travel business in a sense, because I started to get an understanding of the market of how much these places rent for. And, you know, some of them were extremely cheap. So there could be an opportunity, you know, potentially to, to bring clients in and, and charge a higher price and put together a whole experience for them. Okay. Um, I think important to stop and just uh, provide some context for people listening that don't fully understand the U.S.-Cuban relations and the history of the Cuban Revolution. So obviously there's, there's a short and a long version here. But just give listeners a, a quick sort of overview of what's happened since the late 50s here. So in uh, the Cuban Revolution, um, Fidel Castro took over the country and uh, was in power in Cuba until um, the late 2000s when his brother Raul became the president. Raul was the president for about 10 years and now he's passed on the power to who is his vice president is another generation, someone who's not a Castro. And um, 
So that's been what's happened on the Cuba side. On the U.S. side, Cuba was um, put under an economic embargo um, for many, many years, um, primarily because it was seen as a, a, a threat to the United States. If you think about the Cold War, right, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, where Cuba really was a threat to the United States. And so there was some, some very strong laws that were put in place that restricted Americans an American business's ability to trade um, or do business or even visit Cuba as part of the our Cold War um, policy, mm-hmm. and that stayed in place from you know really after the revolution in in the late fifties all the way through and up until the Obama administration, and Obama started to open things up little by little. Even before his his opening in December of 2014, he was doing other things by executive action that allowed for more travel and um, and that kind of all culminated in the reinstatement of diplomatic relations, which happened on that date that we referenced, December 17, 2014. Right. Subsequently, Obama opened up many other avenues of travel and business in the remainder of his two years in office. Um, but um, since Trump has taken office, he has closed off um, some of those avenues of travel and trade and has reimposed some of the restrictions um, on American businesses um, doing business in Cuba and on Americans' freedom to travel to Cuba. Um, but it's still come you know, very, very far. And, and we've gone back a little bit, but it, it really hasn't gone back um, that much. Right. So we'll get to the Trump uh, issuing of the level okay. four, do not travel, um, yeah. which is obviously an important point, uh, certainly a very critical point with respect to your business that, that you're running. But just for uh, timeline sake, I just want to make sure we get this right. So in the summer of 2015, you do this internship and then you go back to Harvard, you finish your degree and then you start the business? No, actually, when I got back to school, I started the business that fall. Okay. So as a second year MBA student, yep. I started the business in October of 2015. Um, and my idea was, so coming out of coming out of that summer, you know, it's important to talk about just how I was inspired by Cuba because I had this um, this discovery on my backpacking trip of wanting to create experiences for other people, but I didn't really know how, where, you know, what that would entail. And then when I showed up in Cuba, I wasn't expecting to do something travel necessarily, but I was just blown away by the culture. I mean, here's a country that is so safe. It's one of the safest countries you can visit in the world. Hmm. It's got the most welcoming people who, you know, welcomed me as as one of their own you know here i'm this kind of outsider american i don't look latin by any means i look complete opposite Mm -hmm. and i lived with a family for the summer and they just you know welcomed me in and and that's the way their culture is you know it's very community oriented everyone's got their doors open they're all yelling to each other across the street everyone's cousins and brothers they share everything and it's very authentic it's one it's probably the most authentic country in in the world because it hasn't been commercialized. There's no advertising or billboards. Um, There's no corporations, right? There's no Walmart. There's no Starbucks. 
And so you can have these experiences that you can't have anywhere else in the world. You know, you can you can walk into someone's home who's one of the country's most famous jazz piano players and just hang out. And he'll, he'll just jam out with you just just because you're in the neighborhood and you, you happen to, you know, pass by and say hello. So I, I really got inspired from the experiential side, tapping back into that discovery and that passion for creating experiences. And, and then I saw the business opportunity creating a tour company, an experiential tour company for uh, millennials, for people my age. There were other tour companies in the in the market, but they weren't doing anything really specifically designed for young people. So the idea coming out of that summer was go back to school and set up a, a trip for Harvard students. Set the company up and I put the word out for a spring break trip to Cuba uh, for March 2016. And with pretty minimal marketing, just posting in different Facebook groups, the law school group, the business school groups, the undergrad, the College of Arts and Sciences, the ed school, um, and others, there were 1,300 people that signed up. They were interested in more information. And of those 1,300 people that expressed interest, we had 140 that actually signed up and went on the trip. And that, that was in March of 2016 that um, really launched the company with that a group of Harvard students. By and large, the trip went well. Everyone made it back safely. Um, I, I'd say a majority of the people had a, had a good experience. There were some people that were upset. They, they felt that you know the trip didn't deliver on their expectations. Um, That's got to be tough, you know, personally, to take. Right? These are yeah. people you know. These are your classmates. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a difficult time and, you know, it's, it's part of the, it's part of the learning process. Creating an experience for 140 people is very different from creating an experience for two people. You just can't do the types of things, uh, you know, the really enriching um, interaction with the local culture and with the local people and these really cool insider access type of things when you have a bus of 100 people. It's just not possible. It's, it's more mass market by definition. So that then led to a pivot um, away from the millennial groups and really the big groups in general to the more intimate private tours, which were catering more towards couples and families. So, so targeting these big university groups to now targeting just two people. Okay. So you finish at Harvard and then, so we've got this trip and you graduate. And I guess the first question is, did you have absolute clarity that this was what you wanted to do? Not at that time, no. I still didn't really know how that pivot was going to unfold mm -hmm. that I referred to. Mm -hmm. So that, that really probably took six months that I just condensed into to kind of a quick pivot. But it was it was, you know, here's this trip that went pretty well, you know, quite a few happy customers, some upset customers. The market has changed significantly because when they signed up for the trip, you had to go with the company. Legally, that was the only way you could visit. And the week that we were there, Obama opened up the travel restrictions to the point where you didn't have to go with the company. You could go on your own. And that made the value proposition for millennial group tours a bit harder to make. 
you know, millennials don't really like group tours in general, unless there's a super specific reason to travel together. You know, you're going for a humanitarian reason, or there's some common purpose or bond that you have with a very specific niche of millennials, not just any type of young person. So that also was happening at the same time. And, and so I guess what I thought when I graduated was I wanted to keep doing something related to Cuba travel, but I didn't really know exactly how that would play out. And it took about six months um, to figure out that pivot. Mm -hmm. But there is there other temptations? I mean, there must have been, right? You had all this banking experience. You have a great resume and now an MBA. It was an MBA, just to be clear. It was. Yeah, yeah it was so, an MBA. So an MBA from Harvard. And, you know, on the surface, it, it just seems like a very high risk proposition, right, <laughs> to take. Um, you end up taking the risk, but um, on, on paper, difficult to do, right? Yes and no. I mean, it, it was I did, at that time, I did not think of going back and recruiting for other jobs at all. I really didn't. I was I was committed to exploring entrepreneurship. I was committed to that, and I did see a huge opportunity in Cuba from a business perspective because it was just this untapped hidden gem um, that was so much potential. And so, with with those two um, pillars, you know, that kind of pushed me forward. Um, but you know, one of the hardest things about that first six to twelve months was thinking, you know, what I could have been doing which speaks to needing that passion for it. You know, I could have gone back uh, most likely and gotten a, a great job. And so I'm giving that up. And, you know, then you're just constantly kind of thinking, you know, is there regret and what, what did I leave on the table? And, and so that was really the first challenge to overcome um, to your question of, you know, were there second thoughts? It, it was, I'm moving forward with just these two pillars of I, I want to explore entrepreneurship and there's a big opportunity in Cuba, I'll figure it out. But then there's that inertia that's kind of, you know, pushing back, which is, you know, I'm spending all this time and energy and it's just exceptionally difficult intellectually, psychologically, you know, why, why am I doing this? But I, I think that's, you know, that speaks to the entrepreneur's struggle and that's, that's really universal. Um, and that's just kind of my permutation of it. And that's why you need that passion. You know, it's not enough just to have the idea. It's not enough just to think you can figure something out and make money. You have to have something deeper. And I was able to connect to that almost simultaneously while this is all happening. So, you know, it's like I'm pushing myself, pushing myself as hard as I can. But then I started to feel a pull. And that pull was this notion of connecting to a purpose that unfolded as we started doing these couples and families, as we started to provide these exceptional experiences where people are saying, you know, this changed their life. You know, this is the best trip their family had ever been on. And they bonded so much. And, you know, they learned so much about themselves that they never expected. And that they, you know, grew as individuals and became more gracious and had more gratitude. And, so, you know, on the one hand, I mean, in terms of fulfillment and impact business, you know, I feel that that's, you know, that's a great thing to be putting out into the world as an entrepreneur to, to have that sort of impact on, on our clients. And then also on the local communities in Cuba, we're making a really positive impact in, 
in supporting um, local entrepreneurs and, and providing an opportunity for them to do so much and for their family and, and to hire other workers and, and to spread that development. And three years in, Cuba Candela has become the number one provider of private tours for couples and families. It's a leading provider of private luxury travel to Cuba, and you guys specialize in custom journeys, as you mentioned. Um, yeah. Full suite of services, including travel documents, private airfare, five-star accommodation, vintage cars, which is very cool, and more. You know, as this thing grows, right, th- there are some issues and some challenges. And I want to come back to this one, which you alluded to earlier, which is uh, President Trump and some of the barriers that, mm-hmm. that he's put in place. How did that impact your growth? Well, the first thing that happened was um, in June of 2017, he made a speech in Miami to a group of um, hardline Cuban-Americans that said he was canceling the, the Obama-Cuba deal. And that got picked up in the media, and it confused the heck out of many Americans that thought that you could no longer travel to Cuba. So there was an initial impact of that um, where when we're moving from under the Obama administration, you know, if you remember, really, you could go to Cuba and do many different things. The licensing was very flexible. There was no enforcement or threat of enforcement. And so people were just jumping down there. Yeah. Um, left and right. You know, mm-hmm. the Rolling Stones played a free concert in Cuba. Oh, that's right. Uh, Madonna I had totally her birthday I totally forgot there. about that. Right. You know, the Rolling Stones. That was significant. Uh, huge. Uh, president Obama himself visited, um, which was you know, the first time the sitting president had gone down in decades. I think it was 70 years. Um, yeah. There was a Chanel fashion show. There was a Kardashian episode filmed down there. So it was just, because, you know, and this was the time at which I made the decision to go into this business and then things changed pretty significantly. So, you know, and it's really all comes down to perception. Um, so Trump came in 2017 that speech in June and said, you know, Cuba's done, can't go to Cuba anymore. But then the substance of the actual rule changes were, were quite minimal. And in fact, you could still go. And so what happened then over the next two years, which lead up to where we are today is um, the cruise ships um, started to really uh, become a booming industry. And you had hundreds of thousands of Americans visiting Cuba by cruise up until about a month ago when um, all Cuba cruises were, uh, were canceled effective immediately. So the second big change um, that Trump enacted was canceling the cruise ships and that actually um, left 800,000 Americans stranded. There were 800,000 booked passengers on all the cruise ships. Um, some of them were en route to Cuba, had to be diverted to other countries. And the remainder of them had to fight it out for refunds and figure out other plans. And, you know, Cuba was the attraction. It wasn't the fact that you're going on a cruise. Going on a cruise to Cozumel is not going to replace a cruise to Cuba. People were going to Cuba specifically for Cuba. So there were a lot of really unhappy people. But that happened about a month and a half ago. And, uh, and land travel is, is legal. So we, we don't do cruise travel. We do land travel. And the license that we use for land travel um, remains unaffected and will continue to be unaffected. In fact, the license we use is, is actually very well aligned with um, the Trump policy. And so we, we don't expect any disruption to our business other than just the kind of overarching 
uh, confusion of the general public of can you go, can you not? And the, the way that these changes have been rolled out um, by the Trump administration has really been, I think, in intentionally ambiguous and vague. And as a result of that, has been very effective in confusing people. So that's not good for our business. It's better if people know they can travel legally. But we continue to have a really great niche um, in these private custom tours for couples and families. And 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 you now have 800,000 booked cruise clients that are looking for another way to visit. And so we're starting to see those uh, turn into bookings. People that were on different ships uh, with, a, with a cruise package are now coming with us on a land package. What does your team look like? Do you have any co-founders? Uh, where are your offices? Are you based in Cuba? Are you based somewhere else? We're based in Miami. Uh, we have an office um, in Miami and uh, got a team here in Miami, uh, marketing, sales, and operations. And then we work with a number of local partners um, in Cuba. Random question about HBS. Uh, just curious, mm -hmm. what is the percentage of Harvard students that go on to become entrepreneurs or founders? I don't know the answer off the top of my head. Um, I can speculate. I'd say it's 10% or less. Would you say that entrepreneurship is a celebrated path post Harvard? It's absolutely celebrated and encouraged by the, by the university um, in many different ways. I think the reason the number is low is you've got people that are coming in from established careers, right? And, you know, they're in their late 20s, early 30s. It's really hard to reinvent yourself at that stage. And it's very hard to give up that uh, other career path. Um, you know, speaking from my personal experience, it's and, and I you know, this has been ex extremely hard for me, but it had to be now because if I continued on um, in that career, I don't think I ever would have been able to, to break out of it. OK, this has been a really interesting and, and wide ranging chat. Um, so appreciate the time, Chad. Uh, in the last couple of minutes, where do you want to point listeners to for more information on Cuba Candela? Check us out at our website, uh, www.cubacandela.com. Also check out our Instagram, Cuba Candela. We've got a great account. Uh, start there. And, and if you have any interest in traveling to Cuba, please don't hesitate to reach out. You know, it's, it's still very easy to go. You can book a flight uh, on the major airlines. Uh, you can fly direct. You can get a visa very easily. So you can go on your own. Or if you'd like help planning the trip, we would love to help. Well, it's incredible. Chad, it's a great story. Uh, well done on creating something that's at the intersection of experience and impact. Um, Thank you. So uh, amazing. And thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. All right, Adam. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on. And uh, we'll talk soon. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? 
Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric Acid.